0: If you've been here, you'll remember the story. Um, We're in um, Persia, the Persian Empire, and uh, uh, a uh, man called Haman has managed to organise it, that uh, the plan is to annihilate all the Jews throughout the whole empire. And uh, uh, suddenly it becomes clear in God's providence why God may have placed... um, which is rushing back, but um, we're, we're doing Esther and then singing later. It becomes clear um, why Esther, in God's providence, may have been allowed to come into the royal palace. Perhaps she has an opportunity to have influence on Xerxes, the king, and save the people. But there is the little matter of uh, Haman having access to the palace as well, and he is uh, absolutely bent on the destruction of the Jews. Esther takes her courage in uh, both hands and goes to speak to the king. Um, and uh, slowly the story unfolds about how she may have influence. One of the uh, most ironic bits is in chapter 6. And we're going to uh, read from that. Haman, hey man. Amen. Uh, full of pride, has decided he's going to murder Esther's adopted father, Mordecai, who will not bow down to him. That night the king couldn't sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Esther, Ted, would you like me to put on my, my lapel mic before we start properly? And at least we might get a reasonable tape. Fishermen. You're going to have to turn that volume down. Uneducated fishermen and social outcasts from a rural backwater who rarely if ever even went up to Jerusalem and yet they were chosen to spread the gospel throughout the world. They turned the world upside down. More than that, how ironic actually that God, if you think about it, the creator of the universe, the one who controls the whole universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, should finally choose to reveal himself in the most fullest uh, sense as a helpless baby. As a person who often seemed to be actually um, tossed around by the whim of those around him. The person who ultimately faced desertion, rejection, judicial injustice, execution. How ironic that actually that moment when God seemed to be defeated was the moment when God won his great victory. Because Christ's death was for our sins. How ironic that Jesus should promise that the first will be last, the last will be first. How ironic that Jesus should say that the humble will be lifted up and the proud put down. Everywhere in the Bible, what God is described actually as surprisingly turning the tables on the expectations of this world. And uh, that is so true. Why do you think it is that God loves irony? I think it's because he loves to display his glory. When little people do big things, that displays God's glory. When God turns abject defeat into great victory, it it reveals his glory. When God satisfies the poor and sends the rich away hungry, as the Bible says. God demonstrates his glory. Actually, somehow, when we see God turning the tables on this world, we see him all the more gloriously displayed. Esther is going to reveal God's glory in that way. The uh, chapters 1 to 4, have uh, been quietly building actually to these great chapters 5 to uh, 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 7. We've met already pathetic Xerxes who rules over the whole Persian Empire and yet seems able to be manipulated by the people in his court and even his queen Vashti uh, can't be made to obey him. We met Esther, the Jewess, who uh, um, becomes the favourite wife of Xerxes and the queen. We met faithful Mordecai, Esther's adopted father, who loyally exposed a plot against Xerxes but received no honour for it. And we met sinister Haman, Xerxes' second in command. But the plot has taken a nasty turn, as I've already said. Haman has become furious that Mordecai will not bow the knee before him and uh, Haman manipulates, bumbling old Xerxes in order to uh, uh, get him to order the complete annihilation of all the Jews in the whole empire. And we are left wondering what's going to happen. With some difficulty we saw last week, Mordecai persuades Esther that God may have made her to be more than I can be. Perhaps she was uh, uh, being given an opportunity to do a little manipulating of Xerxes, the uh, puppet in the Persian White House herself. Esther has uh, certain assets which are very good at manipulating men. Perhaps she can foil Haman's plot. Perhaps she can save the Jewish nation. And uh, at the end of chapter 4, we find the, the sort of, High point of suspense, if I perish, I perish, says Esther, but I will do what I can, and if this was a play, the end of chapter four would be the moment when everyone went out to the interval and uh, uh, and had their drinks, eager to come back and see what will happen in the next act of the play so in chapters five to seven, then we have two th- four big scenes that show us the denouement of the story and uh, scene uh, one is found in the first half of uh, uh, chapter five and here everything is about ongoing suspense. Esther goes to the, to the king in his audience chamber. and uh, Miraculous, she's, she's not executed for her impudence as she thought she might be. Rather, she, seem, uh, she receives, actually, a typical foolish Xerxes offer. Verse 3 of chapter 5. The king asks, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. But Esther doesn't, uh, doesn't move at this point. She plays a patient game. She asks nothing at this point other than permission to feed her master. Verse 6, as they were drinking wine, the king repeats himself. The king asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. And surely we think now, now's the moment, Esther. Now a little wine has flowed. You must pop the question. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. Go on, Esther, we think. Say it, ask it. You've got him half sozzled. He's bound to bound to, to, uh, uh, to, give you anything you like. But you see, Esther's not just a pretty face. She's got the nerves of a poker player, this woman. Verse 8, if the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them then. And then I will answer the king. The request can wait. She can play Xerxes like a violin and she hasn't got him properly tuned yet. She will wait till tomorrow. Then there is scene two, the second half of, uh, 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 of chapter five. A very different scene outside the palace this time. Verse nine, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in Haman's presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Mordecai is Haman's blot on the landscape. While Mordecai lives, Haman's comfortable little vain bubble is constantly being punctured. Haman, though, is soon back amongst his fawning admirers. Verse 11, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honoured him, how he'd been elevated above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a gallows built 75 feet high. Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. And this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. Probably not actually an instrument of execution, these gallows. was probably a place where a body would be hanged to deny it burial. Haman wanted Mordecai displayed to the world humiliated before the world. Not only killed, but completely humiliated. And the scene is set. Scene three begins the process of God turning the tables, of God displaying his glory. Scene 3 is chapter 6. First of all, God just gently nudges Xerxes awake, pops a little idea into his his head. That night the king couldn't sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign to be brought. And it was found recorded that Mordecai had exposed these people who conspired against Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked, Nothing, they said. Then, with absolutely exquisite timing, God brings Haman into the bear pit, or over the bear pit. Haman had got up early, hungry not for breakfast, but to organise this uh, vicious execution before he went on to the to the to the feast. And so we read in verse six Haman entered. The king said, What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? God knows exactly how to spring a trap, you see. Mice can't resist cheese. Bears can't resist honey. Proud people can't resist adulation. They just can't. Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? He's sure Xerxes is talking about him. And so he invents this wonderful, uh, extravagant honour to be uh, bestowed, he thinks, upon himself. And then God springs the trap. Verse 10, get the robe and the horse, just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew, he says. And Haman, as we've seen, was utterly mortified at this point in the story, some of those around Haman begin to get a whiff of what might be going on. Verse 13, his wife and all his friends were told about what had happened to him and his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Yes, they sense. There is some greater power behind this story. There is something going on that feels irresistible. But it is actually too late now. Events are developing in Hyman's life at, at at an unstoppable speed. He is hurried away, we read, to Esther's Esther's banquet. He is like someone wandering down to the seaside to wonder at the amazing glories that are slowly being revealed on the beach before him, not realising that that's prior to a tsunami coming in. And so comes scene four. Chapter seven. The wine flows. Xerxes repeats his question. What does Esther want? And now she finally comes clean. Verse 3. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my perm- permission. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such thing, no such distress would justify disturbing the king, she says. The king is furious and Esther deals a fatal blow. Where is the man, says the king, who dared to do such a thing? Verse 6, the adversary and the enemy is this vile hayman, she says. And now, the irony reaches its full pitch because everything that Haman had wished on Mordecai starts to happen to him. Haman had been enraged when Mordecai would not tremble and bow before him. But now, Haman trembles, pleads for his life before Mordecai's daughter, verse 8, um, Uh, The king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining and the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? Haman's face is immediately covered which actually probably means he was killed there and then because in the Persian Empire your face was covered when you were dead and we've already said those gallows were not really for killing people. His face was covered He was killed. And then there is the final irony, verse 9. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. How wonderfully symmetrical is God's justice? That which Haman would do to Mordecai is done to him. Well, that's the story. A great story. A story of God turning the tables. A story full of irony. Story which actually reveals the glory of God quietly working in the background. I want to suggest that there are three big lessons that we can uh, learn from this story that are lessons that uh, attach to each of the three main characters, in fact. The first is Esther's lesson. Esther shows us. Courage and guile. We saw Esther's courage last week, didn't we? When she finally gets to the point that she will go to the king, saying, if I perish, I perish. This is, this is one plucky woman. But you see, we cannot, any of us, be Christians without courage. Faith is about Trusting God, not just when the going is easy, but when the going is difficult. Faith is about trusting that actually, if we entrust our whole lives to God, then he will bring goodness and happiness and satisfaction and joy and eternal life into, uh, into our lives. Faith is about having the courage not to trust what the world tells us that the only way to a good life is to adhere to its values and its projects. Christian discipleship, Christian faith which has no courage is not faith or discipleship at all, it's a sham. But Esther's pretty clever too, isn't she? You know, she doesn't march up to uh, Xerxes and demand a hearing. She presents herself demurely at his audience chamber. She doesn't immediately make her, make her request. She, she plays a long game. She knows the power of charm and food and drink and she uses them. When she does reveal what she, what she wants, she actually presents her case to uh, Xerxes very carefully. Chapter 7, verse the NIV footnote is actually probably a a, a better translation. She, um, uh, um, earlier on, Haman had sought to encourage Xerxes that the annihilation of the Jews would bring massive uh, revenues into uh, his coffers. But Esther says to, uh, to Xerxes, the Jews are worth more to you alive than dead. A bit of enlightened self-interest is actually often very, very persuasive and Esther knows how to do that. So, we need to be wise alongside being courageous. For us to do something dodgy at work, for instance, just standing up and belligerent may not be the best way. We may actually be wise to persuade our bosses that honesty is the best policy. And uh, we as a church, I'm sure, churches in general, are likely to face increasing opposition to the gospel as the years uh, go by. And there may be times when we just have to stand and uh, fight courageously. But there may be other times actually when frankly we can persuade people that it is worth them Tolerating those silly beliefs that we have because we are of more value in society as a, a treasured part of society than as reviled uh, outsiders. I actually have no doubt that Esther was telling the truth when she told Xerxes that the Jews were worth more to him uh, alive than dead. And uh, politicians today know very well that evangelical Christians are worth more integrated into society and serving society than they are isolated from society. And like Esther, maybe we need to tell people that. Now, there is great courage, but there is real wisdom in how Esther negotiates on behalf of her people. courageous guile is a real asset. And then there is Mordecai. Mordecai exemplifies a principle which is very clearly set out in scripture. The promise from God is God will raise you up in due time. if you humbly serve him. The early part of uh, Mordecai's story is actually one of greater and greater trouble coming on him. His adopted, uh, a beloved adopted daughter gets dragged off into the king's harem. His uh, um, faithfulness to the king in exposing these people plotting against him gets him no honour and then his refusal to bow to Haman makes him a source of venomous odium. Things are looking bad for Mordecai and, and frankly there are many Christians who feel that their obedience and their humble service of God actually brings trouble on their heads. Our young woman's commitment to uh, only look at a Christian man, leaves her single long after she would have loved to have been married. Or a, a person's commitment to righteousness at work leaves them uh, passed over in the promotion states, so those who are less scrupulous in, uh, in, in how they work. A wife's commitment to loving her unfaithful husband actually brings her years of extra pain A church's commitment to loyalty to unfashionable biblical doctrines can bring trouble on our our heads. But the Apostle Peter said it very, very clearly. If we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, he will lift us up in due time. Sometimes utterly unexpectedly, as in the case of, uh, uh, of Mordecai. The New New Testament is clear though that some, some aspects of that lifting up may have to wait for eternity. But you see, eternity is a solid, certain reality for the people of God. Honours bestowed in eternity are worth far more than honours bestowed now. There is no loss in waiting to be lifted up in eternity. That is where our treasure is, says Jesus. Now it's wonderful that sometimes God raises us up, sometimes God gives us honour, sometimes we gain respect actually in this world. That is a wonderful thing God does as he did for Mordecai. But there is no promise that he will always do it and there is no loss if he does not do it now. Because he promises honour and praise and glory and family and friends and riches and delight and happiness and contentment and peace and joy. to those who serve him. Like Mordecai, if you humbly serve the living God, God will raise you up. It is an absolute promise that he makes. And then there is Haman, the third character in our story and the third lesson. Haman's story is about the peril of vanity and pride. For all the the descriptions of his happiness, actually Haman from beginning to end is a miserable warped soul. What a warped form of happiness to walk out of a banquet and be turned to furious misery just because he sees one person who is not suitably obsequious. But then you see, vanity and pride does make us miserable. We are not content With what God has got, uh, with with, with what we have got, we convince ourselves that we deserve better. We buy um, beauty products which lure us with the uh, slogan "Because you're worth it." We make sure that the beer we drink is reassuringly expensive, but we're not happy. We we flatter ourselves that we deserve food which is Not just raspberries and ice cream, but hand-picked Scottish raspberries with dairy ice cream flavoured with Madagascan vanilla. We're fools! We are fools! Scotland grows lots of raspberries. Madagascar is the world's biggest exporter of vanilla. If you go into Tesco's and buy value ice cream, it will have Madagascan vanilla in it. If you get the end of the line selling quickly raspberries, I bet they're from Scotland. But we're flattered, aren't we? We're vain. We're proud. Like Haman. Who would the king like to honour more than me? He says to himself just wrapped up in our, our own self-importance. Actually, I think our rising uh, uh, generation shows every chance of suffering from that even more. A survey of child, schoolchildren recently showed that 75% of them considered themselves to be above-average intelligence. I said that to Emily, actually, this morning. She said, of course. That's the world they live in. Actually in cooperative tasks, the vast majority of children when asked after they've done a cooperative task together um, about their role in it, um, demonstrate that they're convinced that they were actually held back by the incompetence of all the others. And it has to be said, when... when um, Uh, Once upon a time, when naughty children were told off by their teacher, they would bow their heads and say, sorry. Now, their reflex is to hold their heads high and say, what? Tom recognises it. Self-esteem is thriving, actually, in the classroom today, and it is not tempered by the wise advice of the apostle, no one should think more highly of themselves than is warranted. Surveys show that an increasing number of, uh, uh, of people in the workplace believe that they are underpaid for the work that they, uh, that they do and they ought to get uh, promotion and are being thwarted unfairly. <coughs> there is too much of Heyman about us. Too much of the assumption that uh, I ought to be honoured. I deserve it. And underneath that pride and vanity, there actually lurks Haman's resentment—not perhaps as uh, murderously vicious as him, but resentment and misery all the same. Now, if we here are Christians and we are harbouring pride, then be warned. It will damage us and it is God's personal project in your life to make you humble. And if you will not humble yourself, then He will humble you. He has forgiven all of your sins. He will not judge you on the last day but he is absolutely determined to rid us of our sins and pride is one of the nastiest, most damaging of sins in the human soul. If you see anything of Haman in your own heart, hate it. Drive it out. Because if you don't, God will for you and it will be very painful. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I have to be very frank with you. You have no promise that your sins are forgiven. They may actually... Wait until you meet Christ face to face. Never challenged, never fought against by you. And if that happens, then his judgement will be very terrible. God is a God who turns the tables, who reverses what this world tells us, who lifts up the humble, and puts down the pride, the proud. And it is vitally important for every single one of us that we bow our heads before Jesus Christ, that we ask his forgiveness, that we confess how much pride there is in our hearts and we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. because if we will not then we will not be lifted up, we will be put down for eternity. God offers us then a real opportunity Will we follow Haman or will we follow Esther and Mordecai? In the short term, the road may be more difficult to be Esther or Mordecai. But in the long term, there's no competition. Which will you choose?